that statement that, uh, from the Bhagavad Gita. It's always there that only a simpleton thinks that the, the discipline and the philosophy are two separate things. The learned know they're one and the same. And so it's something so key and, and difficult, easy to miss, right? So, and to me, it means that the, what is in this text, the Yoga Sutras, every single one, 196 of them, every one is pertaining exactly to that thing I do in the morning. And so when I look at that, that's what I'm trying to find from that. How does my folding forward in Surya Namaskara relate to this sutra? How does 117 translate into practice? Okay, so we'll just uh, detail that 117, just what is it saying? So in the sutras, they come in groupings. Okay, and the, the first chapter is called Samadhi, and that is its subject, the eighth limb. And um, so it, it tells you that in the first grouping of sutras, that yoga is this stopping of the activity of the mind. Okay? And um, it's called nirodaha, yogas chitta vritti nirodaha. So that nirodaha means cessation or stopping. And, um, and as you, you progress through and you get to 117, it starts a grouping that is called ways of stopping thought. Okay, so 117 is like the introductory way to, to do this. It's like a technique. How do you stop this activity? And 117 tells you how. And it's by connecting with these four forms. Okay, and so it's, in Sanskrit, it's, those four forms are vitarka, vichara, ananda, and asmita. And in English, those are conjecture, or kind of discussion or argument, analysis. So that's one way that you actually create this state of mind. Okay, and, um, and with the Yoga Sutras, it's, it's an interesting thing is that there's so many uh, overlapping terms, so many um, synonyms. So like Samadhi and Nirodaha, they're like the same word in many ways. That Samadhi means cessation. Okay, and so this 117 is actually telling you, it's giving you an entry into Samadhi, into the how to focus the mind. And, um, and so this one way is through this conjecture or argument or discussion. The second way is called vichara, means to reflection. Okay? And the third is ananda. So it's through a, a feeling of bliss or completeness. And then the fourth is asmita, through a sense of I-ness. 
Okay, and so if you read that, you, it doesn't immediately go, ah, oh, I see how that Surya Namaskara has to do with this. <laughs> it's not like, right? How will that translate into my practice? And that's what we're going to talk about. Except we need some little background. Okay? And so there's this necessity to, um, to define samadhi. What is this eighth limb? So it, it's a quality of mind. And um, the, if you want one word for it, for me, that works, absorption. Okay, and my teacher, he calls it cognitive absorption. But the cognitive throws it off. If you add cognitive, you kind of go cross-eyed. You're not, absorption is simply something you can find in the dictionary. And it means um, to soak in, to drink up like a sponge or something, and to be absorbent. And it also means um, fascinated with. Curious about, invested in, enraptured by, captivated. See, so these are all very tangible ideas about a very advanced concept, right? That absorption, it's simply getting in totally into something is samadhi. So that immediately makes it very practical. And it's, uh, it takes uh, contemplation, though, because the level of absorption that this is talking about is something we rarely allow ourselves. We, we rarely allow ourselves to get that captivated by something, that inwardly fixed on it. And so that's that. And then, the, um, so in, and in the Yoga Sutras then, it's saying that, that yoga is to stop this activity that's constantly going on. So in the Bhagavad Gita, it says it, that the activity, the, per, the human being is engaged in activity from birth to death, unceasingly. Okay, and it's just something that's constantly going on by being in material reality. We are involved in activity. Okay, and so, the, and so you stop that activity through absorption. But that isn't the whole thing. Okay, so, because something happens then. So there's something beyond the samadhi. So I've got these little notes here that I've got. And so you've got, there's a necessity to define and express samadhi, this quality of nirodaha, of cessation of activity, of absorption. And, but then there's a necessity to define and express the experience that samadhi leads you to into, okay? And 
And so what the Yoga Sutras have to say about that, it comes right after the, the famous Chitta Vritti Nirodha Sutra. Number one, two. So one, three says, Tada drashtu swarupe avastanam. So that when the mind activity stops, then th this word drashtuhu means as a few different meanings. One is seer. So drashtuhu is seer. And it's a very important way of seeing it, um, what this, this is. What happens when samadhi comes, you're the swarupa. So that means intrinsic essence. So your intrinsic essence as seer becomes apparent. So when the mind activity stops, then you, as a, a, a seer to the universe, the, the, the reality of that, you experience. <laughs> okay, and then the next sutra, it says, at other times, so when, when there's activity, so when there's movement, thoughts and projections and memories, all kinds of things happening, perceptions, when they're, then there's identification or conforming to that activity. So there's a associating self with the activity rather than what exists behind that activity, which is this idea of drashtahu or seer. Okay, and so both of these, there's a necessity to contemplate. It's like uh, you have to perform japa mantra on them. Japa is repetition. Mantra is a device for meditation. So you have to turn it over in your mind, introspect, and if analyze, examine, um, dream about, envision. What is this absorption? What is it talking about? What, is, what does it mean to me to stop the activity? And then, what is this experience that it's trying to lead to? What does it mean to be a seer, this drashtahu? Or another word for it is purusha, means person, or spirit, or consciousness. It's easy to go cross-eyed and to divide the philosophy from the practice. It's just like, whoa, whoa, what is this? How does this relate to Surya Namaskar, to standing poses, to doing shoulder stand? Exactly in that moment. And you consult the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. So you use this, uh, this, is a, this is a sacred text, a kind of philosophical text on Hatha Yoga, which is what we do the, with the Ashtanga. Okay, and it's an excellent companion to the Yoga Sutras. And so, and it, it starts off immediately giving you, um, helping you appreciate what you're undertaking. Because it says that the very first thing this text says is that the, the person that wrote this, who's Shiva, it's written by the god Shiva, <laughs> um, he expounded on the knowledge of Hatha Yoga, which like a staircase, 
leads the aspirant to the high-pinnacled Raja Yoga. So that's the very first line. So the, the Hatha Yoga has been presented as a, to climb the staircase to this high-pinnacled Raja Yoga. And what is Raja Yoga? Synonyms, right? So it's another word for Samadhi, for Nirodaha. And although then the, the next stanza lets you know what you're in for, because it tells you that the owing to the darkness arising from the multiplicity of opinions, that people are unable to understand what is Raja Yoga. It's like, what is this samadhi? Holy cow. And so it says that compassionate, so the compassionate author of this has presented the Hatha Yoga Pradipika to enlighten, to shed light on the subject. <laughs> right, so it's not easy to know what this darn samadhi is, or Raja Yoga, or this state that yoga is leading you to. It's already it's hard. And so then, so then you are given this hatha yoga, this ashtanga practice, these physical doings, asana, pranayama, mudras, bandhas, and th these things that you can really grab onto and use to climb. So it's like a climb up the stairs to that perceptual state of this, how you're perceiving reality. Now, we're gonna look at this idea of activity, because this is so important. If you're gonna stop it, you've gotta have a feeling for what it is, why it's there. And so, and here's some facts about it, okay? So one, kind of yogic facts. What does yoga say about it? So it says, for one, the activity of the universe is not random or meaningless. Okay, so that, it, and it, it happens of, so it happens as a result of karma. All action, the whole universe operates under the law of karma, which is cause and effect. So every action leads to a fruit, and the fruit of that action must come. Okay, and so it, this immediately is intense. It means that the yogi adopts the view of the universe that there's nothing random happening here, that, and there's no outside. You don't act as an independent agent. You, everything is interconnected. Everything is affecting everything else. So every action that you do happens in a, in a, in a meaningful context. It's leading to a meaningful result that, that you, it cannot, not come the result of that action. Okay, and that's very different than uh, ordinary view. Okay, so it's because um, it's like it's basically saying there's cosmic justice, right? And, but human justice doesn't work like that. So human justice is sort of like 
if you get caught doing something wrong, then you pay for it. But if you don't, well, if you don't have a conscience about it, you don't pay. Or if you do some very good act and it doesn't go, no one notices, then what, you don't get credit for that necessarily. Okay, and you, and you right? And, and also that it's like, if you act from your own individual ego, as though everything out there is foreign to me, and, and then I act on my behalf, kind of against that, right? That's how that is. And this is a very different perspective. Okay, and then, um, It happens that the, so this activity that's happening, it's, it's so that you have the seer, which is this purusha, the, the authentic self. And then you have the seeable, which is the material universe. Okay, so, and that's everything that you can see, sense, everything out here, including your body, your mind, your thoughts, your personality. So it's all the seeable. It's all karma, it's all action flowing. So, and it's not random. In fact, it, it's very um, regular. It, it's cyclical. It's conceived, born, lives, dies. And then it re recycles endlessly. All of it, all materiality is in a constant flux, always changing. And that's what we are. And so here we are as these conscious entities that are made of the material that's constantly changing. But behind that, we're this eternal thing, because that's part of the seer. The seer is separate from that cyclical activity. It's different then. Other than, so the seer, as seer, you're never born and you never die. So it's a presence or a consciousness that always was, is, and always will be. There's nothing, it can't be destroyed because it was never created. So this idea, though, that of karma, you got to visit that for a little minute. It, so it's, it's, this is where you're trying to stop activity. Because every action is leading to a consequence, to another action. And it's very vividly illustrated in the mythological figure of Yama, the god of death. Okay, so Yama, his, it means, just like the first limb, restrain. So Yama's the ultimate restrainer. Right? No material lives on and on and on. No, no one in a material body. No, there's a restrainer that comes and brings death, ends it, as part of the natural cycle. And so yamas, of, and because of that attachment to the material, Right, so remember that Sutra 4 where it's saying that when there's activity, we're, we're attaching to that activity and identifying ourselves with it. So that the thought of that ending brings fear and holding. 
And so Yama is aptly depicted as, he's a very formidable guy, he's like a cloaked, he's got a black or red cloak on, and he rides a black buffalo, and he carries a noose. Yeah, he's, he's a, like the grim reaper, reaper, he's got that scythe, he's gonna chop you down. And he, he, when, he, when your time comes, he comes and he drags you with that noose. He lassos you and takes you to the underworld where you go before him and his scribe. His name is Chip, Chitra Gupta. Means rich in secrets. So the scribe has the tally of every action you ever performed. Waiting there, list of this. Okay, hmm, let's have a look. Melinda, how many chaturangas did you blaze through over the years? A lot worse things. No, it's terrible, a reckoning. You have to face your past, your mistakes. Yes, it, because who, even though may, nobody may have saw those mistakes, Chitragupa has got them there. But it's also got your merits, too, that nobody saw. So you got three avenues that could happen where you go after when you're doing, having your reckoning. So one is if you did all just evil, so many terrible things, then you spend time in one of the 21 hells atoning for your sins. Or if you did, you were a saint, it was so pure, every action was impeccable. And so another name for Yama is Dharma Raj. So he's the king of Dharma. And Dharma means, it has two meanings, very important. One is cosmic justice. Okay, and so, a, when, to act purely is to live according to dharma. Okay, in dharma, cosmic justice, you can identify what that is by looking at the yamas and niyamas. Okay, and, and the yamas, the first limb is five things that constitute a great vow, including ahimsa, uh, uh, truth, truthfulness, and um, conserving your prana, your life force, and using it for spiritual purposes, um, non-stealing. So you don't grab, take things that don't belong to you. And simplicity. So you have a simple life, not greed and, uh, based on material gain. Okay, so it, that is, when you live a great vow, according to the yamas, then you are kind of upholding cosmic justice and not building karma for yourself. But there's another very important aspect to the cosmic, to this dharma. Okay, and it goes to the, the wording of the sutras as seer. Okay, so when that, all that activity stops, when you stop identifying with your body and all your personality traits, You become a 
seer. And that is a very individual thing. Okay, and so it, to me, it, it, you have a personal dharma. You don't, it's not only that there's an external kind of set of laws you're trying to live according to. You have a personal dharma that James Hillman, he calls it the innate image of self. Okay, and it's just like that word, swarupa, the intrinsic essence. So you're, you have this innate image that you're born with of self. Okay, so you're born with this fully complete image of the person that you're meant to be or to become. Like the acorn, it's called the acorn theory. So that, that acorn within that is the blueprint of the whole oak tree. All the trunk, the branches, everything, right? And the same, you have this seed, this very complete version of yourself that you come into the world with. Okay, and then you spend your life attempting to get at that, to know what it is, to express it, to, to bring it into the world, to manifest this kind of original seeing. And so Alan Watts, amazing scholar, Eastern philosophy, one of the pioneers, and he talked about um, Purusha, so that's another word for the seer, and described it as a cosmic being. So it, Purusha means person, and it means the, this, that the entirety of existence is contained in the body of one gigantic being. Okay, and nothing can be outside the skin of that being. Because then you'd have a kind of, uh, there's a purusha to the purusha. So there's a place where it stops. So it's all contained, the entirety. And that's you. That's your swarupa. Not this little body, this little ego, this little sack of skin. Where, that we are so attached to and holding on to. No, we're the whole thing. It's all one thing happening, and that is us. And though every person that comes out with the consciousness is, their dharma is to try to see itself as that. But that's impossible. Because if you think about it, you have never seen yourself, right? Because looking in a mirror is very different than seeing yourself. That's a reflection of you. But you, in order, if you were to see yourself, you'd have to be like Coyote, that Native American trickster. He does all kinds of really wild things. And so like he might actually decide, well, I'm going to see myself. And so he'll, he'll pull, he'll take his eyeball, Pull it out and try to turn it around. <laughs> and then he's got a bloody socket there and he can't see himself. So it's like trying to see yourself is like trying to bite your own teeth, trying to touch your own. <laughs> How should you do it? So it's a very 
interesting proposition that the, uh, that the universe is up to. So in each one of us, we're trying, we're, we have this dharma of becoming seer, trying to see ourselves. And it's as though the, it's so impossible that we need your version and your version and your version. Every keep trying to see. When you're this, a seer, you're, it's an original thing. It's, a, it's never, the way that you see the world when the mind activity stops is unlike anybody else has ever seen it, is seeing it, or will see it. Okay? So, keep that in mind. <laughs> and then, okay, so back to... Dharma Raj, right? So when you, if you manage to fulfill Dharma, then what happens is you, you're removed from Prakriti. You're remo removed from the cyclical activity of the universe. You're, it's called not returning. So you don't join back into the cycle of matter anymore. You're just a pure seer. Now, to a person that's attached to a body, that sounds horrible. Like, what? So there's no reincarnation? I'm not going to be born again? I'm just, it just stops? That's the ultimate? <laughs> okay, so we still are not, we're starting to build the bridge to Sutra 17 that takes us to how does that translate into practice? That's where we're headed. And so... Now, this, in terms of a, as a yogi then, what you're working on is to dissolve rather than accumulate karma. Okay, and that's this whole idea of stopping activity. Okay, and, and so here's a few ideas about that. Uh, one is, is obvious, that anything that goes towards dharma, either prong, either towards a, the, living according to the kind of universal spiritual laws or your personal dharma is a karma dissolving, that that is leading towards samadhi, towards a, a clearing of your mind and towards kind of a inner peace. Okay, but and anything that goes away from dharma in either of those so anything that is a contrary to the spiritual laws and anything that's contrary to your own dharma will add karma. It'll make, it'll make a mess. Okay, so that, in this idea that action that is impure or faulty leads to more action, you, the milk um, analogy. So if you're walking across the room with a glass full of milk, a nice white liquid, and you trip. It goes all over the furniture. Then what kind of, how much mess do you have to clean? Right? So many more actions then become necessary to address that action. Whereas if you successfully went across, down to the table that milk goes like that. But like Nina pointed out, it, this corresponds to the, very, the deepest, most profound choices, decisions, behaviors that we are engaged in. Here's another aspect of this activity. 
So the Hatha Yoga Pradipika tells you that it's coming from two sources. Wow, this is a huge little moment. Where's it coming from? It's coming from, it's called vasana, means desire. So desire is so beautiful in a cosmic sense that desire drives the entire material universe. Very deep in one, like the, the vasana's desire that you come out of the womb with, certain bents and um, tendencies already. You don't come out as a clean slate. Vasana. It's like samskara, but deeper. It's coming, it's like from birth. Okay, then the other is prana, respiration. So the movement of life force within you is generating this activity. And so, and then it says that the, to dissolve one or to, to get a control of one, both are dissolved. Okay, so it's meaning that those two are working in combination with each other. Your desire and the movement of prana are creating this activity. Okay, and so this is where Hatha Yoga enters into it. Because it's a set of techniques to help you distinguish between karma accumulating and karma dissolving action. So it's called yoga is skill in action. So through Hatha Yoga, you learn to direct your desire into dharmic channels. And you, and so, karma accumulating activity, the Yoga Sutras gives you a help with that. Because it, it identifies, it's called klesha. So it's called affliction. There's five kleshas that are called root causes of pain. Okay, so, and those are stirring up mind activity, creating karma. Ha having you identify with your temporal body rather than your eternal consciousness. And those, so, and the, you could say that the kleshas, when you respond according to those five kleshas, your, des you are, your desire is being misdirected. It's just that simple. Misdirected desire brings root causes of pain into your reality. And those, here they are, those five. So one, the main one, the root of them all, is called a vidya. Like video is the is knowledge or seeing. Avidya is the opposite. So it's to not see the spiritual dimension of existence. So when you lose track of that spiritual dimension that is, is what is the core of life, that brings pain, brings action that is unskillful. Okay, then the second is asmita, means ego. I, uh, improper I-ness. So, in the, and there's two ways that can go. So, uh, it's an inflated ego or a deflated ego. 
Okay, but both are this imbalance of, of I-ness, of and it's associating yourself with the wrong thing. And so the inflated ego is when you think you're more or better in your conscious mind, that, somehow, or that you're behaving as though you're better than you are, even though it's a compensation for feeling not good about yourself. Okay? And then the, and deflation is the other way, where sometimes we're so self-effacing, so, so humble, kind of falsely humble. Like, oh, I could never do that. And yet, there we are in our mind thinking they're both kind of poles of the same thing. The deflated ego and inflated are kind of one and the same from different ends of the spectrum. Okay, and when we're in that place, pain. Okay, and then you can see, we're going to talk about it in a little bit more detail, but you can start to see where practice enters now. Okay, it, because you start to look at your own actions in the, everything you do, in terms of this ego. What is, this, what is my I-ness investment in this? And then, okay, then third, the third and fourth are the two sides of a coin. Raja, raga and dvesha. So it means raga is um, heat, it's like passion, it's like attachment to pleasure. It's wanting to repeat something we find pleasing again and again and again and again. That's it, causing pain. And then dvesha is the opposite. It's a, we get, we, we try to stay away from and avoid and we hate what is unpleasant to us. We get very attached to not liking that and very worked up around that, very angry. Makes it hard to practice yamas when these are active, right? Dvesha. Okay, and then the last is abhinivesha, means fear or clinging to life. So it's a it's a fear. So there was when we respond with fear, it's causing pain. Okay, and so now we are finally ready for 117. So perfect, so beautiful. Because, so in order to really get at this stuff, this kind of differentiation and discernment about what is actually taking place inside of me, you need a practice. Okay, and that's what sadhana is. You have to have a, a formal, daily place where you go within yourself to a discipline, a, a training. And that training is made up of the smallest tasks. Okay? The more, quote, meaningless, the better. Because why? <laughs> because for one, it's humbling. And, and 
that idea that activity, so that this is a very strong statement from the Bhagavad Gita. It's, it's, you can miss some of the most important things easily, but the idea that we are acting from the moment we're born till the moment we die, that it's constantly going on. It's, it's all, and it's most of it, almost all of it is relegated to the background. We stop noticing. And we also start to think that like the happiness we want, or the fulfillment is something grand. It's something like really big out there that we're gonna get. And, but that's not how it is. The spiritual discipline shows you that you've gotta pull the, use the smallest little thing to see the activity, to, to relegate it to the foreground instead of, to bring it to the foreground instead of having it continually by default be in the background. It's a very cool thing, too, that, that life has that built-in paradox, right? That this, we're talking about the most profound thing. Like, why am I alive? <laughs> right, the biggest question. And yet, how you take your arms up in Surya Namaskara is how you're gonna answer that question. With the very smallest things, how you stand, how you breathe, how you're orienting your palate over your pelvis, how you're extending your arm or your leg, how you're perceiving the form of the asana that you're doing. Because it comes down to absorption, right? That samadhi is the technique that stops thought, that leads you to understand your identity as seer. And it's just simply to be captivated by. Okay, and so that practice has got to grab you. It's got to like fire your imagination. And that's where this connecting with four forms comes from. Okay, and so and to some degree it goes stepwise. That the, the first one is the easiest. And the last is the hardest. So we're going to take it that way. So vitarka, it means this um, discussion or to, to kind of argue. It's a, it's a, you measure. You go, hmm, is it this or is it that? And that, that whole, the reason that shashumna, it's called the middle channel, and it says that all the tantras, all the yogic practices are based off of this kundalini, the, the middle channel. And it's because it's, it is the middle between pairs of opposites. And so this conjecture is, it's simply interfacing with your small project, like folding forward or lifting your head and chest into third position or how you lower into chaturanga. So you're identifying a middle, a kind of classic position, and then you're, you're applying vitarka to it continually to get absorbed. So kind of my Ashtanga methodology, how I'm telling you to practice is based on this. So that you, because you have the perfect setup, your very own body, the most simple thing doing 
the, the most basic things that it is, does. Standing, bending, lunging, twisting, these things. And then you bring an accuracy to it based on physical laws, so a skeletal alignment. And, and you can see how th then, and part of your vitarka, you, you're looking at like when kleshas enter in, like when I'm afraid, or when my ego's invested. And then that clouds your ability to measure, to perceive, to go, am I high or am I low? Am I back or front? And you start to work with it and start to see those root causes of pain and how they are. And then you can also, if you practice long enough, you can see how your misperceptions lead to messes. And it's a physical thing, like injuries and strains and, um, and not just physical things or, or or that explicitly physical. It could be just feelings of satisfaction of like what you're, I'm actually getting out of this or how I feel about how I'm doing, right? And, and the, the ego um, gets involved. And so you're, you're measuring and, and kind of exposing uh, unskillful action and then identifying for yourself what constitutes skillful action. And this is one of the main, especially um, as a beginner. And they say that you're a beginner in Hatha Yoga for the first seven to 10 years of practice. So it's an incredibly uh, tangible way to build a spiritual practice and to um, get this results of kind of identifying how you how my behaviors either lead towards further action and painful results or clearing peace and pure kind of um, action that fits for this moment. Because that's what you're looking for. You're looking to arrive in the moment now and respond appropriately in a fitting way that doesn't lead to some kind of mess. And repetition then is tricky, right? Because you, you have to repeat very skillfully with learning in mind. So that it's, it's, it, each time you're learning from the repetition. Because otherwise, it's just, it's just repeating. Okay, so that's one way of interfacing with um, this form in practice to do it. And then the next, they go together, um, vitarka and vichada. Okay, so vichada means reflection. So it means receptivity. Okay, so in like opposite quality. And it's likened to this, the vitarka is the striking of the bell. So it's a very active kind of bang. Vichada is the listening, the tone. So the tone and then the it's the state that you go in to listen to that strike. That is vichada. So it's a whole nother quality to 
form to connect with when you're practicing. So you're not just comparing, analyzing, measuring, like that. No, you're, there's some piece that's back, that's calm, like a mirror, just simply listening to it, seeing it, feeling it, uh, creating an emptiness, a spaciousness for it to happen. Because you, you can't be all do, 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 will, 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 effort, effort, effort. No, there's a part that's be calm and uh, reflective. So like that idea, and receptive. Just receiving the thing that you're doing. Receiving your action as a means of absorption, of becoming fascinated with what you're doing, captivated by, enraptured with. Right? So you, and so, so nice. Such a, gives, then it's, a, it's got more, way more range. And, and able to answer to more aspects of you, more a complete, um, like who you are, or what you would care about, what you would get invested in. This idea of um, kachadi, okay? So the, it says that of all the, the techniques, the hatha yoga techniques, they're all predicated on this one. Uh, ka, it means an element of space. Chara is maker. So the palate is the space maker. So when you awaken your palate, when you get a discerning palate, when you orient from the palate, then space arrives. And this is vichara. This is the receptivity, the kind of emptying out around what you are doing. The kind of dropping of placing importance, so much importance on vitarka. Okay, and it says, so, um, so when... So when you get that image of Kachari implanted in you and embedded, then it leads to, it changes the shape of your mouth. It's actually a different feeling of being in your body in that part. And it, and it changes uh, a different awareness of drawing breath in. So awareness resides in Ka, the space that is... Um, called the root of the palate. And, um, and then it helps to locate shushumna, the central axis. And, and, and it has an effect on all the senses so that there's a receptivity in the inner ear. Okay, and so that's a very different, um, the, the idea of hearing or listening, it's not coming from out here in the outer ear. It's deep in there. And so it's a whole different quality of attention. And then the, um, it's a more central and inward as opposed to outward or superficial. And the same, with the, when, to get that quality of the eyes, you, instead of trying to like, see, if we're not careful, we'll just kind of orient seeing from the eyeball, from the front. And you can see it in somebody, it's very pronounced when they are bug-eyed. 
You see people that are like, but this receptivity, see you have that optic nerve, it goes back. So, the, so when you're the, take in light, it actually has to go way back to the back of the brain and then forward. So you, 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 this, is, this kind of receptivity is very deep thing. It's connected to the senses and sensing in practice. Okay, then the last two, which it becomes, see, it becomes more and more uh, subjective, personal, individual, the further in you go with connecting with these four forms. It's because, so Vitarka, it's, it, there's an objectivity about it. Like you're, uh, like you're comparing off of anatomical body planes, right? And off of joint function and skeletal positioning. It's like pretty universal. It's not that, I mean, everyone's got an individual skeleton, but generally it's very e much easier to have an objective kind of um, orientation. And then Vichara is immediately more subjective. What is receptivity or emptying out? But then Ananda comes, bliss, bliss. So the, so the, and the, the, this is the genius of the Yoga Sutra, is that talk about two things that captivate us as human beings. One, pleasure, <laughs> right? Anything we like, we'll get into. And, and the opposite, what we don't like, we will shut out. Okay, and so there, it's like the, whoever researched this used the strength of the human being, used what the human being already does. Okay, so, and what an amazing thing. It, and it's a very um, trusting thing, a very affirmative thing, where it's saying, your sense of bliss, of pure enjoyment, matters for bringing about some absorption and stopping this activity of the mind that's obscuring the reality. It's a very welcome thing. It's just plain and simple. You gotta like your pose and, and make that a leading aspect to what you are doing. and something that you get captivated by. And that's why I love the, one of the meanings of absorption, enraptured by. You're, you go into rapture because you're, how you're doing your pose. And that, right, what an amazing thing. But you have to be careful. It's a very dicey thing because we're talking about desire and so that um, desire is fueling the activity. And misdirected desire is bringing kleshas. And so it says, and avidya is the first klesha, which means um, an absence of awareness of that spiritual reality. It's the making of four mistakes. Okay? And one of the mistakes is, and they're radical mistakes. 
Okay, one is to mistake dukkha and sukha. And sukha is a synonym for ananda. So dukkha is suffering. Sukha is pleasure, agreeableness. But when, when, when avidya, when that klesha, when you're ignorant of the spiritual dimension, you're reversing them. So what we think is ananda or pleasure is actually painful. And also, but what's amazing is that the, the, the word is dukkha and sukha. Both have ka, kachadi, the same root. So dukkha is to be without space, to lack space, to be cramped, hemmed in, crowded. Sukha is spacious. That is agreeable. And so you can use this kind of palate orientation and a feeling of, a, a visceral inner feeling of, of your relationship to space to identify what is actually bliss here and what is not. Okay? So, on the one hand, you've got to trust your own aesthetic, your feeling of what you like. And yet, you're applying Vitarka to it. Is this really... If I got those inverted, is this actually causing me suffering? What I'm thinking is causing, what I'm thinking is bliss? So you're, it's a, it's a razor's edge. Because you, you, can't, you can't get anywhere in yoga without trusting yourself. Okay, so the, part of the six, two of the speedy sources of success in yoga are daring is one. Daring, you have to be bold and courageous. And so you, to be daring, you've got to have confidence in what you do. You have to know that what you like is wholesome and trust it. And be ready to pay when you're wrong. <laughs> and learn from it and redefine what constitutes bliss or sukha as you gain experience. Okay, then the last one is, again, it's, it's, it's potentially even harder than discerning about enjoyment is this quality of asmita. So remember, asmita is a klesha. It's a root cause of pain when it's imbalanced. When I think my body, my thoughts, my memories, my fantasies, all my perceptions, when I think that is me, and I'm this little body against everything out there, that is ecclesia. And then the whole deflated ego, when I have a, don't feel good about myself, then I will distort my sense of I. I will have delusions of grandeur or I will become depressed because I'm so bad or wrong with the, and all that self-harmful self-criticism and things is coming from an ego place, a deflated ego. But this is different. This is Purusha. This is me as seer, me realizing my dharma, that my, the, the individual 
um, spiritual contribution that I'm meant to make by being alive. I have to assert that. And, and so your posture has to reflect that, this ownership, this kind of, I, this is my pose. This is how I am striking this stance in this moment. I'm expressing my spinal gesture in this way, and I, I'm claiming that. So it's a, I-ness, it, it has this aesthetic to it that goes with Ananda, with bliss. That there, what, what I find uh, blissful, there's a beauty aspect. And then, and it's also very, it's my own aesthetic. And the, that's dealing with this kachadi, with the palate. So to, to have a discerning palate is to decide what, what, uh, what do I like? And then that way, it doesn't matter what anyone out there thinks. Or the, the, their opinion, no matter how important, it's still not as important as my very deepest sense of I-ness within me. And that that, and think of all the subjects we get absorbed in. We're in a constant monologue with ourselves about us, right? It's constantly I, right? We're the here, we're the, we're just going through our story. The subject is me, <laughs> right? And so we're taking advantage of that and turning it into a, an actual spiritual uh, expression of spirituality by, by taking it to a highest level. So it's not a base kind of ego-driven I-ness. No, it's an I-ness that knows that is everything, that there's nothing outside I. And what a, a way to do a yoga posture with vitarka, Vichada, Ananda, and Asmita, to connect with those. Right? What? I mean, what? Holy cow. What a yoga sutra. What, can you believe? I just can't even believe it. I just, just blows my mind. And I will never not. I don't get used to that. What a delivery of incredible, useful, practical wisdom you're talking about here. Just, you can go right on your mat and just use those direct. And you watch immediate results, immediately from distraction, so, so many activities, so many zillions of things the mind can wander off into, whom, whom, whom. You're inside your body, absorbed. <laughs> 